0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for checking out this week's edition of Telich Talks. We are talking to Phil Bova, longtime Clevelander, longtime referee on the collegiate basketball level, among the best to ever do it decade after decade after decade. Big Ten, Mac Conference, all over the country, all within a league. The man was outstanding and He was a central figure in one of the most infamous things to happen in college basketball. Back in 1985, the day that Bobby Knight lost his mind, picked up a chair, and chucked that baby across the court. Phil Bova was there. Phil Bova was there for many great moments in college basketball. He also has helped many a person become a referee And he's just an engaging personality, a super guy, grandfather of many, I think he calls them the divine nine. And he has written a book called Throwing Back the Chair. It's his recollections and him recounting for the listener and or the reader what it was like to be an official all those years, including his all Bova team talking about the best coaches that he dealt with on top of Bob Knight, talking about the arenas. So many aspects of what he did as a college referee are within the confines of the book. So we had a nice little lunch at a nearby diner in Cleveland, Ohio, and then sat down afterwards and had a nice chat. Hope you like it. Phil Bova throwing back the chair on Telich Talks. Great to be here with Phil Bova, and the book, it's really entertaining. Throwing Back the Chair, a lot of people talk about the incident with Bobby Knight. We'll get to that, Phil, but let's talk about how a football team aided you to become a big-time basketball referee. Well, John, I never thought this would happen, but I was going
1: to a basketball game in, out in uh, Berea. And a good friend of mine was doing some student teaching at the high at the junior high Raymond junior high okay and uh i was sitting in the stands and they were playing the cleveland browns or lead to say it was packed and at that time it was walter johnson and paul warfield so team browns were pretty good at that time and so i'm sitting in the stands and the game starts and don't you know the poor it was only a two-man game and don't you know the one referee turns his ankle minutes into the game <laughs> So they're taking care of him. Now the other referee's looking around for a buddies. There's no buddies for him. So he walks over, says, is there anybody can help me referee? Everybody's hands were right by their side. I says, you know what? I raised my hands. He goes, come on down here. He said, you ever play? I said, well, I played in high school. I played freshman basketball at Kent, but I do know if somebody gets knocked on their on their rear end, uh, it's a foul. He goes, put the shirt on, and then from that point on, I said, hey, this is pretty cool. You know, people get knocked down. I was blowing the whistle, they're screaming and yelling. I says, I like this challenge. So I took a couple of classes, and uh, the rest is history. But I I enjoyed that. how to break into basketball, I never expected it to be that way.
0: Well, and I'll tell you what, Phil. So you go from, you know, refereeing in a charity basketball game for a football team, then all of a sudden the transformation is you're refereeing big-time college basketball, Big Ten, Mac, and what have you. Tell me the process that took you from that Browns game, aside from those classes you took, that got you to to be able to ref on on a big-time level. Well,
1: uh... I used to coach and teach at St. Anne's, and my grandson's playing basketball for St. Anne's now, he's a sophomore. And we used to referee, John, in the back on Saturday and Sunday, the little kids' games for three dollars a game, <laughs> and I was getting screamed at that and yelled at at that time. I says, you know, it's got to get better than this. I know they make a little bit more money as we go up the you're ladder. So making, you're making ten cents per screen. Per <laughs> scream, right? And it was very confined in the back at Saint was the wrestling room. So we really had a ball. Many of those players i i used to referee i see them today They're, they have families but i was i often said if if it's same thing with baseball if i could ever give back to the game that it's given to me i would so i started a basketball referees camp and of course a baseball camp we had for 45 years and the and the basketball officials camp for 22 but you have to work your you have to work in a process you start the freshman level the jv level in high school and then uh, high school the varsity and then I was fortunate to be right man right spot at the mid-american game which is in our in one of our chapters throwing back the chair a guy by the name of jim desmond had observed me a number of times not knowing that he was observing me okay and that's why i always tell kids work every ball game like it's your last one because for those players and for those two coaches it's the most important game on the planet so that was always the the idea that i had the way i approached most everything everything i do but particularly basketball and so i was asked to join the staff and uh i worked independent for a number of years and then i got the chance to work full-time in the mac and then eventually to work for herm Rorg, the great herm Rorg, uh in the big 10 and uh 30 you know 30 years i never thought i would have one year let alone 30 years so it's a process okay and it and you're evaluated every ball game and by not only the coaches, but by the supervisor and by uh, several people in the stand. So you have to do your job, would lose or draw, and you have to focus. So I, I was very fortunate to get an opportunity at a young age. I was in the Big Ten at 30 years old, and I was able to, uh, I think the Big Ten is the finest conference in the country traditionally, consistently every year, just great players, great coaches, Hall of Fame coaches, many of the guys. You don't have to be at NBA play to be a great player. What's so great about college basketball is they play from the opening tip to the final buzzer. You turn the TV on, you don't know who's winning by 15 or 20. That's what I love about the game. They never, you know, that commitment to, uh, to to not only winning, but to being the best you can be.
0: Phil, before we get to that situation with Bob Knight, and that's just a tiny aspect of your whole career, but again, the book's called Throwing Back the Chair, and so we'll, of course, re- refer to that. How did you just week in and week out get from being, you know, you're a teacher up here, and right. then on the weekends or when the games were uh, set, you had to get to all these different Big Ten schools, whether it's in Ypsilanti or, or I'm sorry, in, uh, 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 you know, Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti would be Eastern Michigan, so that's... Which a I worked, yeah, they but were in, in America
1: too, that was part...
0: Well, that so would be how you of got around years. to all those different right. schools and then still got back to the job on Monday morning at 7 o'clock? Well, we, uh, it wasn't easy
1: and, and it's a process and I was fortunate to gain the respect from my supervisors, who understood that this was not my full-time commitment. I was an educator for 44 years, and those kids were my first priority. Sure. And so I had to, again, I said the respect. They worked with me, particularly the Mid-American, because that was more Ohio-based. The, the Kent States, the Bowling Greens, uh, the Eastern Michigans, the Toledos. I was able to get out and get back. And so consequently, I tried to work the big 10 ball games. I could go anywhere in the country on the weekends. And so one day, and this is one of the, I'll show you a quick story out of the book. My principal approached me and says, you know, my son's a pilot and we can get you to and from the basketball games during the week after school and you'll be back in time and you could go to the Indiana's and the Purdue's and the Penn States and still be back in time. I said, gee, that's wonderful. Well, (laughs) long story short, I give be the first and the last. The first time I flew with this young man who is, by the way, is an excellent pilot. We wound up flying into the wrong airport. It was a military-based airport. And no sooner did we land than we were escorted out of there in the next 10 minutes, and I will not express to you the language that was shown toward us. So we, back in the plane, I got to Penn State and got into the locker room and walked out onto the floor one minute before, tip-off, and my partner says, where were you? And I says, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. <laughs> and the second last one is is uh, chapter three. Long story short, I won't go into great detail, we're on a single engine Cessna after a double overtime game between Indiana and Iowa. And we go to take off in probably 10 degree below zero weather at Bloomington Airport. Plane got up in the air 15 feet and the propeller stopped this is single engine single engine sesta and uh we were very fortunate to be able to survive and it bounced and bounced and skidded and we thought it was going to blow up and fortunately for us obviously it did not but it's something that i'll never forget my two but the pilot will never forget in my one of my partners and so that's the last time John I've been on a single incest I guarantee you that
0: I can't uh, blame you for changing your method of uh, travel <laughs> at least your method uh, your your type of airplane that you you would take well you somehow found your way to Bloomington Indiana on February 23rd 1985 a day that will live in infamy <laughs> in a, in college basketball history you're referring with two other accomplices or no, i shouldn't say accomplices of <laughs> uh, folks that do the same job that you do and do it well but you're trying to uh keep order with bob knight's uh, blood pressure rising what well, happened and where were you in all of this well here's the situation this is what's even uh add to this whole thing this adds to the
1: uniqueness of it my daughter was 16 that years was her old. Birthday. It was that her, was her birthday, birthday, February 23rd, 1985. And when I got home, all my wife said to me was, if you would have been home where you belonged, you wouldn't have had a chair thrown at you. So that's, uh, that's a thing that we laugh at quite a bit. But in in any sport, you always have what they call a pregame. In basketball, college basketball, we're required to be there an hour and a half before the ball game. So consequently, we sat down knowing the Purdue-Indiana game is a big time it's a, it's a big yeah, this is big stuff it's big it's the biggest game in our, uh, both of those schedules was on national television afternoon ball game so we went over the all the pros and cons things we should be looking for if this happens if that happens well the thing we didn't cover was a chair coming down on the floor <laughs> and we both look all three of us looked at it
0: i mean as, did you feel this coming on
1: no not yeah. even close things were here's what happened sometimes Everything, when the ball's in the basket, it's an easy game to referee. When the ball's not going in the basket, it's tough. Well, for Indiana that particular day, everything seemed to go against them. You know, you can't not blow the whistle because it's going against you. You've got to call the ball game the way it was, and a lot of fouls, and they were in, suce- in succession, so consequently, Coach Bob Knight wasn't very happy with a number of things, and it started with a jump ball where he thought, we, uh, one of my partners the foul on steve alfred and that was the beginning of the fiasco and so consequently the chair came out i'm not going to go into great detail but i could tell you it probably took about 10 to 11 minutes to get restore order and uh, i look back at it now and say i don't even believe it happened and the the quarters and dimes and nickels that were thrown out on the floor I probably collected about $2.50, <laughs> so I put it back in my pocket. But uh, all kidding aside, it, it wasn't wasn't funny at that time, and we were fortunate that he did finally leave the floor, we would have had to call that game. But uh, the beauty part of this whole thing, as we've discussed, that same summer, Coach Bob Knight walked into my officials camp and did a wonderful job, and uh, unbeknownst to the campers. So we've always had a good relationship, and, and that was his way of saying, hey, look, forget what happened. I'm coming to your camp. I'm going to show you that I respect you. And I appreciated that.
0: Well, he did respect you. And so how did you handle him? Because he was the most possibly volatile of coaches and known as a bully and all of these different adjectives, Phil. But you were able to have that respect a two-way street. So what did you respect about him that enabled him to respect you in return. One of the things I did, list, what I try to do with all the coaches,
1: and particularly with Bob Knight, is I listen to him. Okay. And then I, then I would, rather than become intimidated, I tell him exactly what was on my mind, the way I wanted him to tell, and I made sure he was very clear that you talk to me with respect, I'll talk to you with respect. You treat my my brother officials with respect. Or if you cross the line, you're going to be penalized. Sure. And he understood that in... And, you know, fortunately, we were able to get along for all these years. But that's not to say he didn't have technical fouls. And he was probably one of the most difficult to work for uh, because of what he demanded from his players, let alone uh, officials. But if you worked hard and, and he thought you were working hard, that's all I think he expected. But in dealing with him, it was just a matter of paying attention and coming back and telling him exactly what I felt, and he respected that.
0: And so how did your relationship continue after that? How many more games did you do with Indiana? We know that he came to your camp that summer. You just gave that story. And he came, by the way, gratis. He did not come for yeah. any kind of a fee. And he stayed much longer than what you uh, asked him to stay. And he had a great time. And, and so how was that relationship going forward after that? Well, it's funny because the following week, John, I had a, I, it just so happens I had –
1: I had Indiana again, okay. and and, was, and and the beauty part of it is, it was like it never happened. It never came up. Okay. It never came up. You know, I'm sorry. This and it, it just everything just flowed nicely. The ball game was a lot better than the Indiana Purdue game. Uh, the shooting percentages were higher, and then of course I think I had maybe one or more two more times because this was in February, so I had him in the playoffs, and then uh, of course then, then he attended my camp. So I we everything flowed nicely. It, we had there was no. Uh, a situation where w- there was a grudge held. Okay.
0: Well, it's kind of cool. So you look at the back of your book, you, there's a lot of testimonies from people, big names in the world of college basketball. One of them is Dickie V. So you work with a lot of, uh, obviously, with a lot of the broadcasters or were around them or play by play people, our good friend Michael Regai, uh, and so on and so forth. What was the relationship with the broadcasters for you? You're the official. You're probably not you know they're part of their vernacular but yet still they weren't sitting there saying um uh, we have to know tons about phil bova we just want to make they're just saying we just want these guys to do their job the way they're supposed to do. right
1: well the thing about dick Vitale used to tell the uh, the national audience is phil gets his hair cut at the same barber i did yeah so the, every so that that kind of broke the ice but what i always tried to do uh, before the game, is I made sure that I, I talked, said always, said a lot to them, let them know, even if they didn't know us. Hey, we're human beings too. There's we respect each other's positions. And if there was a bang bang play or something they may not be sure about, we went over to them on a timeout and explained to them so they in turn could explain to the audience. They appreciated that. Uh, the game's about the kid. It's not about the referees, but we see each other. It's our business. It's imperative that we communicate properly. And I, and I, I took great pride in that. And, you know, you mentioned about Michael Ray guy. You mentioned about, uh, the, we talked about the great Al McGuire. And we talked about uh, these different people. It's all about the respect that we had for each other. They weren't after the referees. They're they're professional people. They call the ball games, and that that's something that's respected by the officials. And the, I'm sure with the broadcasters, with the with the coaches too.
0: You have had the the referee camps. You've had uh, you know seminars on telling people what's expected. So what were one or two of the the l- the, you know, the attitudes you try to stress to people to get them into officiating or to make them still continue to be passionate about it. <clears throat> one of the things uh, that's a great question, John, one of the
1: things that whether you're man or woman, you're going to go into officiating. You've got to go in with a clear mind. OK, you've got to go in with the idea that this is a uh, this is not your full time job. And, but it is important to those people, so you've got to be able to separate yourself, put your game face on, and work to the best of your ability for the two hours. It's also important that you your family and your job does not—they understand and they're going to support you. Have yeah, great support system. Exactly, it's imperative, John, that you have a great support system because when it's all said and done, you've got to come back. And so many, so often, I've seen it come and go. People come back, and there's no one to come back to because they put all of their bread and butter into one basket, and it doesn't work. So you have to put things into perspective. Uh, It's a game, it's played hard, you go out there, do the best you can, but don't forget, you have a family and a job to come back to, and and people
0: respect respect that. I, I asked you before about handling someone like Bob Knight he is a strong personality. Who were some of the other <clears throat> strong personalities as far as coaches were concerned or great characters that you enjoyed working with and uh, being on the same floor with most nights?
1: Well, I'll tell you, Gene Cady, you know, Gene Cady was just, when you walked in, Gene Cady was an icon in the Big Ten for many, many years. They named the uh, Purdue floor after him. Yeah. I mean, Cady's Court. I mean, he demanded respect. He was a former professional football player, and he had that growl about him. He's one of the nicest guys you ever want to meet. And he's a guy you could commiserate, talk to during the ball game. But if he got into an uproar and he got it going pretty good, then he'd get that crowd
0: into the game, and he knew that. And I remember the one day he took that coat off. Right, so he's in front like of me. a conductor, man, and he's just he's just pumping <clears> that <throat> crowd up the way he's acting out there on the sidelines.
1: He give you that growl like he was so and they're mad. playing off it. They're hey. they're they're so attuned to this guy. Exactly. And they're looking forward to it every ball game. Be a bang bang play, he get up, <laughs> he start rocking and rolling. And uh, the one time I remember distinctly, we always talk about it, he had that yellow coat on, okay, kind of a yellowish coat. And he took that coat off. He threw it up in the air, and I says, "Guess what, Gee, When it lands, boom! <laughs> boom technical because it. I knew it, Phil." And then off he'd walk away. And then five minutes later, we're back talking about it. But he was the guy that demanded respect. Tommy Ezzo. Uh-huh. Now, of course, when I he was a young assistant with Judd Heathcote, and I had a, a lot of interaction with him. I tried to took I took pride in trying to interact with assistant coaches, only because I would like to sometime. Minimize anything I had to do to the head coach via the assistant so coach they'd going to. They would be the buffer. Be they the buffer. would be the buffer. And so uh, Tom Ezzo obviously has worked his way up from a young assistant to be, becoming an iconic uh, yeah. NCAA player. Uh, as coach. big as it gets. As big as it gets. He's won more ball games. And so those three guys really stood out. There were some great coaches come through all the entire country, but in this case, the Big Ten, those three
0: stand out to me the most. And Bobby Knight is the one that people talk about the most and that one incident is what people will concentrate on a lot but there were other sides to this guy this guy had a humorous side this guy you know could could give and take with you All i right. mean he wasn't always super stern you saw the human side a lot didn't oh, you oh absolutely particularly particularly at the camp he was as
1: relaxed as you could possibly be. And as I said earlier in our in our discussion, John, he was only supposed to stay an hour. He's talked three hours straight and he had everyone in the palm of their hands, but we had a lot of laughter, a lot of humor, questions and answers. He's done so much for a number of people. And I think I shared this with you before. My grandchildren, my grandsons would play basketball for him if I could if that could be a possibility. Because he demanded the best of himself, the best of the coaches and he demanded the best of the referees. And if you didn't do that, then then you were going to hear him. Yeah. And I, I respect that about him.
0: Yeah, just an Ohio guy from uh, you know downstate, just a little bit down Orville. in Orville. Orville, Ohio, right. and certainly had a Hall of Fame uh, career. How about the arenas? I mean, you, you mentioned Bloomington, and maybe most of your thoughts about that arena centers from the fact that you were officiating while Bobby Knight was roaming the sidelines. But what were some of the iconic places that you – uh, officiated in, and how were the crowds maybe different from one venue to the <clears throat> next? And what did you measure it two places,
1: Two places come to mind. The palestra. Okay. The palestra was just Big Five basketball. I mean, that's Temple. That's LaSalle. Yeah, and all the schools oh, in Philly. Boy, not to, it was like a sardine can. I mean, just like the old-time basketball courts in the Cleveland schools, okay. except maybe, maybe four or 5,000 people. They were right on top of you. Great tradition. Madison Square Garden, fabulous. I got an opportunity to work the NIT semifinals and championship. I was in awe when I went out there because of all the great players that ever walked out on the floor. It was unbelievable. And say to say to myself, wow, I got a chance to do that in my career outside of the Big 10. How cool is this? I mean, it's just the history and being part of that history is just, you know, something I'll forget. I'll never forget for a lifetime. And then of course in the Big 10, I. I've been to all of them, of course, and I really like the Schottenstein. Okay. I threw it. the last ball up at St. John's Arena.
0: I like the oh, St. John's. Oh, no,
1: I love St. John's. St. John's Arena, a lot of people don't appreciate it because they haven't been there, but I worked the last game. It was against Penn State. It was an overtime game, and they had close to 100 stars that had gone through Ohio State and brought them back, and I was in awe, John. I was at Kellogg's awe. and people oh, like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I got a chance to throw the first ball up at the Schottenstein which was like, I just think is phenomenal. I mean, they have all kinds of things going on there outside of basketball yeah. season, but it's just, it's like 17, 18,000 people. There's a lot of room, you know, I just, uh, that's a great spot. So I, I those are the, my three favorite arenas throughout the country.
0: Were there any games that you did, Phil, where you just felt from walking out and not Bob Knight orientated or anything of that nature, you just walked out on the court and you thought, this is gonna be one hell of a night. It's yeah, I don't I don't know if we even want to begin this game. You uh, just had the vibes that things were gonna be difficult, or <clears throat> or just how the crowd was acting and stuff. Another great, another great question, John.
1: I I
0: thrived on that.
1: I, I really did. I thrived on the big ball games, knowing that I mean every games the most important game on their on their schedules and i worked that. i try to work that ball game i guess my last one but sure you know as as this week would go on or you look at your schedule you knew this was going to be a barn burner okay and i i just got fired up uh so many so many types, like in a big 10 tournament or the ncaa tournaments and league games they were just they just bring the best out in you and, and 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 you wanted your two crewmates we have three guys working we all wanted to be on the same page and get a good flow for the game because anybody could put air in the whistle it's the guys that don't put air in the whistle at specific times and let the play go through that make the better referee you don't just put air into the whistle the air But once you blow the whistle compared to football throw the flag you pick the flag up but basketball you better have something if you have an inadvertent whistle you got a major problem on your hands so to answer your question i knew i could just sense you know that every game was tough but there was just certain games that took a step more hmm. tension and i i just i just thrived on that i really did
0: well, it's really kind of cool to get some of those stories about not just the iconic coaches, but maybe maybe that Tuesday night game in 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 a school that's not as well known for you know high big time basketball. But you're out there doing your job. It's still the same amount of feet from oh. one basket to the next, and you've got to do 100% the best that that you can do. So as you continued on your career, did you evolve as an official, how you did things? Or were you super critical after each game as to how you graded yourself? How, how did that process go from year to year? Here, when you're first in the league, see we used to have crews. We we worked every
1: single ball game together. And that's that has pluses and that has minuses. But one of the things I tried to do individually is try to gain the respect of the coaches. So I was one of those guys where I would listen, but I led the league in technical fouls back to back years. So you listened only to a point. <laughs> to a and point, Then you right. said, "Tea time." That's it. Not not that I was after you, but if if I thought you were trying to, you know, uh, circumvent us in any way, then I had to do what I had to do, and you wouldn't do it again, or then we'd have to address it. So after it just seemed that you wanted there's a there's a time when a referee goes out on the floor. Where he's accepted, he has that he has that aura about him. He has that reputation that you're going to get a fair shake. I may not like him, but he works hard and he and he referees the game the way it's supposed to. Sometimes, you know, there is there going to be those personality clashes between coaches and officials, just as there are with players uh, from time to time with with each other. But in this case, you want to minimize that and just be part of the 13 people on the floor. Sometimes you can't help it.
0: Boy, it's really exciting to to just take note and think about all the games that you did over the span of your career. And I know in your book that you you kind of detail some of those. The the ninth story is that's iconic, and that will be told a hundred years from now. Um, what other you know like big time games, whether it's a Duke. Or, or, or you know, Michigan State, or whomever uh, that you know, you really felt like you were part of something magical. And that goes back <clears> to many of those NCAA tournaments. You worked 20 tournaments, 20, 20 straight tournaments, 20, straight, tournament, 20 yes. straight NCAA tournaments.
1: I have to share this with you. It's, it's out of the Big Ten, and uh, it's amazing that this would happen. And again, it's, 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 it's again in the book. And I won't go into great detail, but I always have a great amount of respect for him. Gail Catlett from West Virginia. Okay. And Temple John Chaney. Now that was like at the Purdue uh, Indiana game or the Ohio State Michigan game at football. Now they're, we're at West Virginia and they have pictures of Chaney and they're holding them up with the, like a little yeah, sticks. Yeah, the sticks, the pumps, yeah. And of course, <laughs> and of course, the ball's not going in the basket for uh, J- John Chaney's team from Temple, and they're getting and, and West Virginia's having their way. Now the assistant coach from Uh, Temple is all over us and particularly he is not very happy with me and I'm not very happy with him so I told him one more time "Bub, up and here it comes well it's in the book but I'll go a little bit further and give you an idea I go over to give him a technical foul Coach Cheney jumps in my face and I'm throwing the assistant out and as I throw the assistant out I catch Coach Cheney by the chin and the tie and almost knock him back and I didn't mean to do right. it, yeah, you and you just threw about. Okay, so now <laughs> he comes flying off the bench. They're grabbing him. I'm all upset, because I'm not upset with J.D. I'm upset with his assistant. So now we have this fiasco, and we're going back and forth, back and forth. That would seem like forever. So as he's walking off the floor, I'm underneath the basket. There's some more trees exchanged, but here's the best part. Monday morning, I'm at school. I was an educator. I get a phone call from the commissioner. I says, uh-oh, this is it. The commissioner has the coach on the line. The three of us are on the line. The head coach for Temple Hall of Fame coach, John Chaney, apologizes to me for his despicable behavior. The letter is in the book. I apologize back to him for whatever I might have said. And I give great credit (laughs) to the commissioner for having the professionalism to bring it all together. And I worked a championship game uh, that three weeks later uh, with Temple and Kentucky.
0: How big of a sales job did the commissioner have to do to get John Cheney to be in this conference call, to get him to apologize.
1: Well, I would say this to you, John, and to answer your question. I'm not sure, but I would imagine John Cheney had an awful lot of respect for our that commissioner. And again, that's mentioned in the book. And I was just like awed. But then two days later, I get this letter. I'm going. This is this is doesn't happen. This just it was unfortunate what happened. Yes. In a way, it happened. But to to have that professionalism and and take it and and bring the respect back to for both referee and coach it was it was just a great great move on the commissioner's part and we became good friends in fact I even talked to the assistant from Temple in the future (laughs) but you know it was it was a nice icebreaker it was a nice icebreaker and that doesn't happen very often. It just doesn't. So no, it, I was. That's something I'll never forget. And of course, that's in our book, and a little bit more in detail.
0: But I thought I'd share that with you. Oh, that's interesting. So you, your life has gone on. You're the grandfather of nine, nine. and they've played youth sports. And I guess my next question is, you've probably been at some of their games as a, as a great grandfather that you want to be. Right. And you see people getting after some kid who's just making right. fifteen, twenty bucks right. for that game. How, how do you react to that? Well, sir?
1: I have to bring a rope and bite the rope so I don't <laughs> say anything to the referees. I can tell you that right now. Because the beauty part of it is, my one, uh, we have two grandsons in the 7th grade. They were playing each other and uh, they were guarding each other. So I had to sit at the 5th or a half court, bite my little rope I call it. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to God. First of all the, our book is dedicated to what we call the Divine Nine five boys four girls i have two daughters and a son and three yes and my wife of course for putting up with my uh all these years for, as a referee and as a, certainly as her husband but, but 53 years we've been very very blessed to be with each other and have what we have but uh, uh these guys that are refereeing today it men or women it's extremely difficult as again we talked about earlier because of what's allowed to happen to the the vulgarity and and the the abuse that these people take, Uh, I'm not sure how the Ohio High School Athletic Association is going to clean it up because there were several incidences last year in high school where fans emptied out of the stands and, and the four referees were right, you know, right at their, uh, yeah. right in the midst of that. So
0: wasn't there an incident in the Lutheran East game, if I recall, or with, maybe not specifics. But right. So,
1: okay. Right. But I, uh, I go to, we go to all the ball games. My grandson plays for St. Ed's and uh, my other grandson plays for, uh, Highland and Olmstead Falls. And again, we're at all these different games and we just try to participate in, and I, I admire the referees and how hard they try to work, but it's a it's a more, it's a big challenge for them today. It's a big challenge. It's a big challenge for the administrators to keep the peace. Yeah. So. So how can people get "Throwing Back the Chair"? Your book. All right. It's Amazon.com. Uh, "Throwing Back the Chair," and it's also on Kindle. Okay. But it's uh, the the best way to get it is through Amazon, and uh, they uh, I believe there are two three days. Uh, afterwards after you make the request and we have had several book signings uh, we have a book signing coming up uh, in two weeks uh, okay and that will be at the East End uh, Bistro okay in Madison on Madison Avenue in, in Lake- Lakewood okay that's uh, that's, that's our dates going to be uh,
0: oh, great. great two weeks from tomorrow that's so, great. Well, uh, I, I, you know, I'll tell you what, Phil. Forward to that. You've you've had uh, an incredible career and so much fun to kind of recount some of these these incidences that have gone on through your career. And again, I know people will point towards the, the there's so much more to oh, it. Yeah. it. It's like, I, I had Jimmy Hanlon, uh, the, the outstanding broadcaster, The Golf Guy, on my, right. Uh, on this podcast recently. And I said, you know, it's so much more than the guy wearing the loud golf pants or loud shirts, Amen. you know. Right. And, and I say that with you, with all due respect to you as well, for the many years that you roamed the sidelines and up and down the floor and had that whistle uh, and, and did all those games uh tremendous longevity for you and you're an iconic figure uh in the business and i just wish you nothing but the best with the with the book and with the with your life as things go forward for you thank you so much
1: john i appreciate your time thank you
0: Thanks very much to Phil Bova. What a great conversation that was. I really enjoyed it. So much respect for Phil and what he has done in the sport of basketball as an official. How he has helped so many young officials become great at their craft. Great deal of respect, not just from yours truly, but people in The collegiate sport of basketball, the biggest names in the sport, speak so highly of Phil Bova. And I think those Bobby Knight stories about what happened after the incident when Bobby threw the chair and Phil was the guy that dealt with him that night, how much respect Bobby Knight had for him because he came to his camp later that year and went over and above to show his appreciation to Phil Bova. Our most recent episode, Ricky Stanzi, the former NFL quarterback, Lake Catholic High School Cougar, and movement coach, talking about the GOTA movement. That was a highly listened to episode, so I encourage you to check it out if you want some tips on how to run the right way and how to gain more speed, and you don't have to take this from me. Take it from someone like Odell Beckham Jr., who enlisted the services of Ricky in order to tweak his running motion and to make him more economical out there on the football field. That's episode 36. And the one before that was with Jimmy Hanlon, episode 35. The man with the loud pants, the golf guru, if you will, you see him on your television, and he was a great, engaging kind of an interview. Look forward to giving you the opportunity to check it out in our archives and listen to that as well. And thanks once again for listening. Please uh, give us a uh, little bit of love there if you can. Subscribe to our podcast. We're on all the different platforms. And then rate us and give us those five stars. We certainly would look forward to that. And thank you very much for listening. We look forward to coming back with you one more time the next time we join you on Telich Talks.